0: Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we're welcoming comic artist Daryl Banks. Daryl's going to fit right in with the other comic artists we've had on the show, so let's get started. On mic today, we have Daryl Banks. How are you doing today, good sir? I'm doing
1: fantastic. How about yourself?
0: I am doing fantastic. I'm looking forward to talking to you because your art has been the driving force behind some of my favorite comics going especially through the 90s, but even past that. And I'm really eager to talk about some of my favorite topics with you. So, um, let's go ahead and get started on that. Uh, right. One of the, I, I loved your run in especially Green Lantern. That, that's one of the the top uh, projects you've done. What was it like to work on that?
1: It was it was a thing where um, when I first started working with DC Comics, I was doing Legion of Superheroes fill in but I kind of wanted to work on Green Lantern. Not it wasn't. I wouldn't say it was a lifelong dream. But it was I just had ideas for the character. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, growing up, I mean, I was more of a Marvel fan. But when it came to to Green Lantern, it was more like, as an artist, I just had ideas for the character. And I thought I, I remember telling my uh, my editor uh, on on uh, Legion of Superheroes that you know that I had some ideas, never knowing that the assistant editor. Uh, for Legion was also the assistant editor for Green Lantern. So they were going back and he was like telling them like, Hey, this guy, he's got some ideas. What do you think? Kind of a thing. It was almost like like keeping, like keeping tabs. Like, well, we'll see how he does, you know, mm-hmm. so, uh, uh when I was, you know, given the opportunity to do it. Uh, I came on the project thinking I was drawing Hal Jordan. Now I wasn't the biggest Hal Jordan character fan, but growing up, I loved the art of like Neil Adams and, and Pat Broderick and and uh, Mark Brighton, guys like that. So I'm figuring, you know, I'm just going to kind of step into those shoes. And, and, you know, my editor at the at the time, his name was Kevin Dooley. He said, well, uh, there's going to be some changes, putting it lightly. I'm like, what? Oh, okay. So uh, he said, but you'll be glad. You, I, it's almost like I imagine if they've made a movie of my life, that scene would be a part of it. Like, there's going to be some changes and you will be glad you're on the ground floor of it. I'm like okay i hope so so (laughs) and i I, I, yeah and i was glad i was on the ground floor of it
0: are there certain changes that started to manifest themselves that you you were you you've been planning in the for a while and you finally managed to put onto paper well
1: when i think about early on one of the things that kind of struck me was i remember i because my editor had a great sense of humor still does um and I said, Well, you know, a lot of changes you're talking about, but as long as you don't kill off Kilowog, I'll be fine. And then <laughs> silence on the end of the phone, silence. And I'm like, Well, I'm like, Okay, you know, all right, joke's over. No, seriously, we, we're not killing off Kilowog. It's like, Okay, yeah, I had to break it to you, but <laughs> yeah, we are. You know, Now, obviously, he got better, but at the time, sure, you know, uh, that was it was one of those things. I thought he was kidding. I thought he was kidding. It's like, no, you know, uh, that's one of the things that that led, you know, how to the path of
0: becoming Parallax. And Kilowog's death was one of those things that even as far as superhero deaths go, it was pretty grisly. I mean, that they that was for just a couple panels that it took. That scene was a gut punch.
1: Yeah. Well, imagine how I felt. (laughs) It was (laughs) one of my favorite characters and I had to draw it. And but I understood what we were doing. Like, this was not one of those. I mean, keep in mind, I, I always say this whenever I do an interview, is this was the 90s gimmicks and change was everywhere,
0: mm-hmm. especially
1: you know, keep in mind, this is like the height of image mm-hmm. and all that. So, you had so many changes for ch- just for change's sake, but. The one thing I got, the impression I got from from Ron Mars, who was writing, from Kevin Dooley, Dooley who was the editor, is that we're not doing this as a gimmick. We really feel like we want to add to the characters. Because before that, you know, Hal Jordan had been around. And he had his flares of brilliance here and there, like hard-traveling heroes with Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. And he had the Mike Grell stuff. But, you know, at that time, you know, p- people really didn't care much about the character. He was oh, that's the guy from the Super Friends. You know, like, oh, mm-hmm. make a boxing glove out of the ring. Eh. You know, no one cared about Hal Jordan. And in some ways, I was glad about that because when I was in high school, that was uh, during the time Frank Miller's Daredevil was, um, was well, actually, no, I was, I was in college. Uh, Frank Miller's changes on Daredevil was amazing. You know, he took a character that was like, eh, what, C-plus at best, and made him an A-lister. You know, Frank Miller's Daredevil to to me to this day has affected comics in general. You know, dovetailing into Frank Miller's work on The Dark Knight afterward. But I felt like I always wanted to be a project, uh, a project where we took a character that people didn't really care about, and all of a sudden they they care about, and that Mm -hmm. happened. And I was very glad to be a part of that.
0: I kind of wonder, maybe you're you're the guy to ask because you said you came from being a Marvel guy to working on a DC project and knocking it out of the park. Thanks. So, uh, I'm thinking, in my mind, Marvel characters are generally—they're a little more independent outside of the costume. We've changed Iron Man's, we've changed Captain America's, we've changed Spider Man's. We're a little more hesitant to change Superman's and Batman's. they, they tend to always be their original identity. Well, is that something that worked well going into Green Lantern? Because you could just flip out another person behind the costume.
1: One thing I noticed is that, and I feel like so often we compare DC and Marvel but i always felt uh, and i think a lot of people would agree they're not the same i i, I feel like dc characters have a, a lot more of a iconic sense mm-hmm. you know um you can you can tweak them here and there but we almost need them to be a certain way but with green lantern i felt like because he wasn't on that necessarily in that mount rushmore we had more wiggle room and so uh, also, the fact that you know, we've had other Green Lanterns before as an entire core, but this was still going to be different. This was going to shake things up, and people were going to notice Green Lantern. And uh, it's it's amazing that to this day it's it's maintained its momentum. And uh, I'm glad to I'm glad to know that.
0: I I would agree with that. I think that there is definitely a, a certain need because those were some of the first characters we knew that we kind of emotionally need them to be there as the background and we let marvel characters kind of be a little more human i guess right
1: right so when we add that element to a dc character it's even just that in and of itself like oh like they're people it feels almost a little weird but we we, we agree that yeah we but we need that you know
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, with hal jordan becoming parallax now i mean nothing against what jeff johns did he's uh, did an amazing job but He kind of gave Hal Jordan an out by having Parallax as this creature that took him over. Our take was he was a man that made a mistake. He was pushed over the edge. We've all been upset and and regretted saying or doing something out of anger in the heat of the moment. And Mm -hmm. that's where we we wanted to humanize Hal Jordan in that way that, you know, uh, imagine you're working on a job for years and years and you're training people and they get the promotion, but not you you know, you were not going to be happy about that. You know, I like to to compare Hal Jordan to the Michael Douglas movie, Falling Down. Uh, His character defense, I never really thought was evil. He was, he just had, he'd had it. He'd had, Mm -hmm. he'd been pushed too far. Matter of fact, I even kind of was inspired the haircut that Michael Douglas had that movie. you you notice Hal Jordan kind of had that same kind of thing going on. I don't think that was intentional at first. I kind of realized like, yeah, that's, I kind of gave him almost like the, this Michael Douglas slash Terminator kind of haircut going on, um, and that's what what at least that's how I thought of Parallax. Is not so much he was a super villain, but he was just a person that just you know he's just that that was it. So um, it was one of those things where what would you do in, the, in his situation, type of thing.
0: Yeah, and I think that's that's how I took it away. I didn't really catch up on the Parallax you know, being a separate entity till much later. I did that on a... I I went back and checked that out. But it's like, I think what succeeded there, and I say I read The Killing Joke, which does a similar thing with Joker. He was a a guy who had the ultimate bad day, and Mm -hmm. that turned him into what he was. And while I like that story, it didn't really click with me on the level I think they wanted it to. But the the Hal Jordan thing did. The Hal Jordan thing, make okay... This guy was, he was a righteous guy, and things just didn't work out, and he just couldn't take it anymore. To, for me, there was a truism to that that I didn't see in The Killing Joke.
1: Well, with, with how I mean, he asked a reasonable request. And also, keep in mind, he didn't just lose his parents, his brother, uh, he lost his entire city, and he felt like there was something that could have been done about it, uh, that these essentially like these magical characters that have done things before that now it's you know he's calling in a favor and, and they didn't want to honor it and it was too much you know um so that's why he just became this like i've got to set things right there's not more i got to take over the world now that i have all this power it's more like i just want to make things right in his mind you know mm-hmm. and because he was coming from a real uh injured sold you know, he made some real <laughs> he made some real, continued made some other bad choices. And what's good about that is that he got on everybody's radar. Like I said, uh, no one cared about Hal Jordan. Uh, mm-hmm. All these groups talking about, oh, you know, what have you done to Hal? Like, yeah, but you didn't care. My editor told me that uh, corporate said, you know, either you bring these sales up or else, and the or else is that don't think we can't cancel this book.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: that's why we were given such extreme leeway uh, it was uh, it was almost in a similar similar situation where uh, Martin Goodman said to Stan Lee, Amazing Fantasy is doing terrible. I don't care what you do with it. And that's how we got Spider-Man. It's almost like when you leave creative people alone and give them free reign, they can, they can work some magic. you know. <laughs> Not to compare what we did to the, what Stan Lee creating Spider-Man, but I think there were some similar circumstances.
0: Well, when you let people... When you tell them they have to play it safe, that's when no magic happens. Mm-hmm. That's when you get stories that are forgettable. That's when you get stories that you just read once and toss aside, and you wonder if you spent the $2 well. Right, right. I mean, you can hate the story, but if it got you to think about it, you know, your time probably wasn't wasted. hmm Like, I, I love the story. I love the comics in general in that period, and it confuses me now that we get a lot of fans who are really down on the way comics were done at the time because gimmicks this and, and killing them off that, it's like, yeah, but that was exciting. You you look forward to those issues. You talked about what was going to happen. You were engaged in a way that I don't really see now.
1: Well, I think because there were a lot of gimmicks at the time, I, I get why people were skeptic, skeptical. I mean, uh, issue number 50 had a glow-in-the-dark cover. <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I get it, but we didn't approach it like a gimmick, you know. We essentially made comics that we ourselves would enjoy. And I remember, you know, like I said, growing up as a, a kid, pretty much more Marvel than DC. I thought I'm going to have a Marvel. I'm going to I'm going to do Green Lantern the Marvel way. It was kind of like my, uh, you know, my approach to the to it artistically. And as we started to uh, add more, uh, I would say, personal elements to the characters, you know, because I always felt like DC characters. You know, they, they felt like the Super Friends, you know, uh, not to not to say the Super Friends was terrible, but, you know, what I mean, I felt like you cared about Peter Parker. You wondered about Tony Stark. Well, we wanted the same thing with the the Green Lantern universe. You know, we wanted, you know, what is Hal Jordan like as opposed to Green Lantern? And then, of course, with Kyle Rayner, we wanted to make him interesting without the ring. And we felt like if we could do that, uh, once he start to use the powers, you'll you'll care even more.
0: Yeah, and that's the Super Friends. I watch it too. I love it, but we give it that hokey reputation kind of for a reason because the characters, that do we ever really see them out of their outfits on the show? Maybe once or twice. We, you know, thinking back, I,
1: I I think I remember Clark Kent, but you know, I don't really remember Bruce Wayne at all. Uh, and so, I mean, granted, it was for little kids, so mm-hmm. I, that might not be the best example, but. I think that was the overall first past impression people had about DC characters, like they were these iconic, almost one-dimensional characters, you know, mm-hmm. uh, sun-drenched, square-jawed character. But but the thing is, they should own that. I mean, that's the, that's their identity. However, there's there's room, I think, to add to that, which you know that's what we we wanted to do during you know, Green Lanterns to add some dimension to the characters. Did you figure? Mm-hmm. If you care about them, if something happens to them, you'll be more emotionally and maybe even intellectually invested.
0: I, I, we got a good nice fleshing out of the the background characters in their lives as well. and uh, Green Lantern struggle, against not knowing what happened with Carol, uh, you know losing losing his whole city, seeing the, what happened to him before he even became the Green Lantern. And that was also like the golden age of the Elseworlds stories, too, when suddenly, you know, the other ideas of what would have happened if their story had gone a different way. I really think that that was a time when we started to really invest in just thinking of them as people, as characters, as human characters. Yes. I
1: think so. Uh, and that's, when you when you care about the character, you'll be more uh, more follow what happened you know the interesting thing is i remember uh you know the famous alex and the, you know alex DeWitt, you know kyle rayner's girlfriend had Mm -hmm. had no long history in the dc universe she had made maybe four appearances before that if that but you know he said we got more letters about her than we did how becoming parallax and i Mm -hmm. thought she wasn't the first death the comics had ever seen not even the worst one but I think that showed how how much investment people were into the story. It's something a character that they weren't. They don't even have a long history with. It, it was shocking. Now, of course, adding to that was that um, of course the, the, the comic that you saw was not how I drew it uh, with Alex in the refrigerator. I don't know if, if you're aware, but when I when I uh, originally drew the the famous panel, the refrigerator door was open. Um, you could see. You know, she was still dead, but. She, you know, you could see her body intact. Well, the comics code at the time said, "Well, we can't show that," so you know, draw a refrigerator door mainly closed. And I remember doing that. I'm thinking, okay, but if you show the door closed, and you can't see her. People are going to think, like myself, I can't fit a body in my refrigerator unless mm-hmm. it's in a lot of pieces. So that's what everybody thought. Like, oh my God, he killed her and chopped her up. That made it worse. And so something that we we would have been done talking about. Two months later here in the year 2020 we're still talking about i mean there wasn't even a a little nod to it in uh, in the deadpool 2 movie with the you know the the uh the christmas edition or whatever we mm-hmm. talked about fridging you know uh the girl in the fridge that's that's alex <laughs> so uh with an attempt to censor it they made it a hundred times worse uh now of course we didn't do it for shock value or anything like that it's like Uh, I think Ron Mars was even accused of hating women, which is odd because he's married and has daughters. Mm -hmm. Um, We needed... Kyle Rayner needed an Uncle Ben. He needed a reason. Why would, just because you had the power, why would you become a superhero, risk your life? So, like just like when Peter Parker was first bitten by the spider, you know, he didn't want to be a superhero at first. He wanted to be an entertainer. He wanted to be a pro wrestler or whatever. But Uncle Ben's death kind of put everything into focus on why he needed to uh, you know the whole with great power, great responsibility. So we didn't want to have Kyle Rayner's have an uncle have a have a <laughs> have a, a, a death experience or death scene. So we thought, can't make it an uncle. Well, what you know? Okay, how about a girlfriend? And that's really Alex was created to be Kyle Rayner's uncle Ben from day one. That was that was why she was created to, to be his uncle Ben. Really, that that was why. Not because you know anybody hated women or some kind of thing like that. It was more like. Yeah, we need a reason for this character to want to use this power for, you know, forces of good and, and to fight the good fight and all that sort of thing. He needed a, more of a motivation and a reason. That's that's where that, you know, that's the foundation for that.
0: I have a hard time thinking of any superhero, any good superhero at least, who became a superhero with an entirely positive background. It seems they all have some sort of tragedy bad experience something that made them want to do to, to fight the fight right. so i yeah I, I don't see that 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 was avoidable at all right right and
1: uh, i think about uh tony stark becoming iron man you know had professor jensen not died who who knows what his where his life would have turned but you know he was he was inspired you know when you see it, you, it's a change of perspective and that can happen in real life. You, you'll discover mm-hmm. something and go, all right, now I understand this particular struggle and how I can help, you know, especially having a resource. But in, in Kyle's case, it's a superpower. I mean, granted the Green Lantern was around, but he wasn't super familiar with exactly who they, who they were and what they did. Mm-hmm. But that's what we wanted. We, we wanted the reader to feel like they were Kyle Rayner. Like if I got this, this power ring, what would I do with it? How would I? How would I learn as I went along? We, we, it was sort of like a, a tutorial. Like this is who Green Lantern is. This is what he can do. This one's different from the previous one. And you know, how do you feel about that? I mean, to this day, people will come up to me and say, you know, you know, Green Lantern's been around, you know, the, since the original 1940s version. But Kyle Reiner was my Green Lantern. I, I love people saying that. It's kind of like that's that's what we were going for. You know, uh, we want him to be, you know, that particular generation's Green Lantern.
0: And it works fantastically well. Even to uh, strip away the guardians, who were uh, basically his bosses for the time, they kind of took them out of the picture for a little while, and he was kind of calling his own shots for most of the run. Mm-hmm. And that was that was a great move on that part too. Thanks. So when you're you're as the artist there, there's something I love about the art from that period. Now I think as the years went on toward the the early two thousands, it got Little more detailed for my liking, a little a bit too busy visually. Is there something you were working on at the time, or that was just trendy that made those characters work?
1: Well, that was still relatively early in my career. I mean, I had before I start working with DC, and I'd only I've been working in the independent com- uh, companies here and there for about five years. So to me, it was I was still almost like Kyle Rayner, still learning. You know, now keep in mind this was the height of artists like mark silvestri and jim lee and all that and you know i want it to be a, a big deal as well not on their level so you know it was still a learning process you know learning storytelling learning you know better pacing but uh one thing i always discovered is that i could never go wrong being clear you know maybe it was the best drawing but as long as if you can tell what's going on and, and conveying what the script is is portraying then i felt like you know i had done my job i like the fact that. Uh, I had I, I was given a mandate though I remember my editor said you know Kyle Rayner is an artist and he creates a lot of things out of his imagination like all Greenlanders are supposed to do but with him is we never want him to create the same thing twice with what ah. uh, now I wanted to do that anyway but they they, he, they they made it they made it a mandate for example Greenlanders always create some sort of defensive shield he said well if he creates a shield never make the same shield twice like let's say if, if we make a a medieval shield one issue don't do that again the next shield has to feel like something from anime or and then if you've done that one the next one's got to be a giant turtle shell or something like that just keep being creative on how he might perform the same function but visually make it different and i thought that's i wanted to do that anyway but you know that's that's perfectly fine with me now the one exception we had as far as something he could create twice there were times where he would create battle armor for himself so we could get more into melee combat. That was the one thing that we could, you know, and even then he didn't appear a, a whole lot. But uh, his combat armor was—we were, uh, you know—I was allowed to draw that a lot.
0: Sweet. Okay. Okay. I gotta go back and look for that then, because I mean, it, it was one of those things that I probably wasn't thinking about. If I appreciated the touch. Mm-hmm. So do you still now, and this is just me thinking off the top of my head, do you still have the urge to just say, okay, okay, I need a shield. What would I use right now? And did you give it a little challenge to yourself?
1: Uh, I mean, there are so many things you can protect yourself with that it, it's actually pretty easy. I mean, it, it all since he could make it shaped like a, a soft blanket, but it's actually hard because, you know, it, because he wants it to be, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, But just using that creativity, and also we we're – also trying to get across the fact that he's an artist, that this person is more creative than any other Lantern. How can we show that? He's got to get a, a lot more uh, creative in what he what he makes to get that point across, else he'll just feel like all the other Lanterns, just making things. Now, I, I like the fact that even to this day, they even have the other Lanterns being real creative with their ring creation. I'm like, yeah, but back in the days, it was vacuum sweepers and mouse traps and boxing gloves. And now they're making robots and big laser cannons and all that sort of thing. I'm like, I mean, that's fine, but it's kind of like that was kind of Kyle's thing. But, you know, at least they understand that that's visually interesting, especially if it adds to the character, you know.
0: So, what were you working on? uh, What are you working on now that I might be able to keep my eyes on?
1: There was, I, last year, I worked on a a World War II graphic novel called Harkin's Raiders.
0: Okay. It was through
1: Ominous Press. Uh, the co-creator of Harkins Raiders, Alan, Alan Cordry, he has a sword and sorcery uh, story idea that he's, that he's putting together. And I'm uh, doing some pages for that. Uh, and we've had uh, some great artists doing cover, you know, variant covers as well. Uh, but that's what I'm working on currently comic-wise. Now, a lot of my work, I do uh, commercial illustration and a uh, whole lot of commissions, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that sort of thing. But uh, comic-wise, that's that's what I'm working on currently. Now, of course, before that, you know, I did the uh, worked on the Green Lantern 80th anniversary issue, and uh, I mean, that was one of those things where it seemed like it came out of nowhere. I didn't, I wasn't even paying attention to. Oh yeah, it is the the 80th anniversary. I wonder what they're going to do. Then I got an email that I almost deleted. It's Like, oh, we want you to do a, an eight page story. Like, oh, oh, you do. <laughs> so, uh, one, it was it was great, you know, drawing Kyle again. Uh, actually for dc and not just a commission and also uh, that's the first time i ever did any work for dc that was completely digital um i still do traditional pencil and ink especially with my commission work or convention sketches that sort of thing but as far as actual you know actual books you know it was great being able to show that you know that i could that i could do it digitally and to their satisfaction and uh i felt pretty confident because most of harkins were digital. it was Sort of like a 70-30, you know, and had some uh, traditional art that I'd scanned along with digital. But with this, it was 100%. So, uh, and sort of Freya, the story I'm working on now, that's also completely digital. So, um, trying to get better and better at that and and seeing what happens.
0: Awesome. The World War II story definitely piques my interest because I'm also a big fan of histories. And I love any time that comics and history collide, because I think it's a great way to show uh, anything that's actually happening in very visual, visual form. People like war. war movies, I like war comics.
1: Oh, great. Let's see, Harkins Raiders was the fictional story, but the, that uh, the core characters were a part of was actually real. Uh, there were there were a group called the SOE. I think it was called the... Oh, I forgot the, what the acronym was, but it was uh, it was an international... It's almost like... They were. It was a secret up until, I want to say the 50s. Like, it, it was kind of a covert type of thing, a joint uh, group with uh, the UK and the United States. And that's what Harkin's writers deals with. Uh, the main character, uh, James Harkin, he puts together this team and they've got to uh, get a, a defected a Nazi scientist across enemy lines, that sort of thing. And it was, it was, I thought I was an odd choice for the project because I'm not known for <laughs> my historical artwork. But, you know, it was written by Ron Mars and, and created by, you know, Alan Corddry, who was a friend of mine. So it's almost like I, I think I got the gig out of association. But I thought, um, as a former teacher, I should tell my students, you never know what you might be presented with an opportunity. And if it's something that's out of your wheelhouse, use that as an opportunity to grow and so uh, some of my first uh, comic work at all when I began my career was, I worked on uh, uh, the Wild Wild West, uh, based on an old TV show. And that's kind of like a Western, you know, mm-hmm. I, I can't draw the West out of my head. So that was a whole lot of research. Uh, then after that, I did uh, Doc Savage, the Man of Bronze, the old uh, pulp character, which was set in the kind of the thirties, forties. And, you know, once again, I've, I've had to combine research with fiction. And uh, it was like being in school, really. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, you know, with Harkins Raiders, it kind of reminded me of, of that that e- experience was. So, um, and I, I, the thing is, there was a lot of pressure. I think I put it on myself because I'm thinking there are hi- history buffs, especially if they're going to look at like planes and some of the other hardware. Like they're they're going to they're going to pick it apart. But I'm like, if I make a mistake, <laughs> fine, you know. I, I'm, I, but I'll, I'll I'll do my best to make sure this is as accurate as, as I possibly can make it. So uh, I, I like how it came
0: out. Uh, if they're going to pick it apart, they're going to pick it apart. You're not going to stop that. But if you can give them something to enjoy while they're doing it, I think you still did your job. I, I
1: hope so. I hope so. It's still available on uh, OminousPress.com. So uh, this is you check it
0: out. That's why I love the creative idea and the creative mindset. Because everybody else, when they get a job, they're taught to ask themselves what they can't do. If somebody says, can you do X, Y, and Z, and they're not sure, they have. They feel like they have to say no. An artist almost always has to say yes and figure it out later. And that's that's yeah. it's a change in mindset that I love.
1: Yeah, that's that's it in a nutshell. you like, know, uh, can you do it? Like, sure, sure. How do I do this? You know,
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> it's on you to figure out how. And that's that's something nobody else really deals with.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know, and like I said, hopefully people liked it. You know, um, if uh, if you haven't. Gotten a chance to check it out, you know, if, if you'd be interested in, in taking a look, I'd, especially if you're history buff, see what you think.
0: I'm going to make sure that goes in the show notes, not only the project, but where people can get a hold of it so they can order it if necessary. Um, I also want to put in the show notes that we did have Ron on here a couple months back, and I'm sure that the two episodes would be great back to back. Oh, okay. Uh, Daryl, is there anything else I can add to the show notes to make sure people can follow you and your adventures?
1: I'm, uh, I'm on social media, mainly uh, Twitter and Instagram, and uh, I'm still on Facebook here and there, but uh, I like to post artwork and progress of things I'm working on. I think here recently I posted a couple of work in progress and some commission work and showing some of my process on what I do, and if you follow me on Instagram, you'll get more of the personal side of me. I'm a big toy collector as well, so I, I kind of limit my wow. toys to just to Instagram because you know, it gets kind of nerdy, so I'm thinking, yeah, I might want to just keep that over here and you know, uh, share the artwork on, on, you know, Twitter and Instagram and, and Facebook as well.
0: Well, I think the toy collecting could be a whole different conversation we could have, and I would love to have you back and have that conversation sometime. That, that sounds great. That sounds great. Okay. Well, let me let you go, and we'll quit while we're ahead, and we'll get to that sometime soon, okay? That sounds fantastic. Thanks okay. for having me. Thanks for having me, sir. Take good care.
1: Uh, you, you too. Take care.
0: I would like to thank Daryl for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. For the community-building part of the show today, I would like to reach out to other comic artists. Whether you are a huge, huge name in the industry, or you are just picking up your first pen and paper, I would just like to know about your work. I have a long list of people I would like to have on the show, and I hope I get to them all. If there's somebody I don't know about, I would definitely like to. So if you're a comic artist, please reach out to me either on Twitter at Aaron Bossig or send me an email at the address bossigpodcast.yahoo.com. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. Don't forget you can subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, and we are syndicated on Realm of the Mist, a fantastic podcast network. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.